When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. Anyway, uh, today, we re- I guess we realized that we have introduced most team members of Gillette Health. We have not really introduced ourselves. So we'll be doing that in these next two podcasts. Yeah, it'll be really fun to find out things that neither one of us have ever talked about just by chance and asking some of these questions and going through how we got to where we are today. I think mm-hmm. it'll be really interesting and uh, people have asked this a lot, so excited yeah. to get started. Maybe I will learn a few things about you as well. We spend a lot of time together, but uh, I guess let's start where uh, people are most interested, which is childhood trauma and maybe your personal health history as well. Those <laughs> seem to do really well on social media. Yeah, I will list these in ICD-10 codes, so the audience has to do some homework to find out what's wrong with James. Uh, but no, uh, actually for childhood trauma, I actually have a pretty good story for this one. So um, getting into medicine, I started out on the patient side of things, actually. I broke a lot of bones growing up, and there was a concern for my bone density at one point. So there's a a medical history gem for everyone out there. Uh, But one uh, fracture in particular was particularly traumatic, I guess you could call it. I fractured my radius and ulna uh, and then was fine immediately after the fracture, uh, but had a rod placed to stabilize the... Uh, radius and then develop compartment syndrome after that operation, which is a bit unusual. Usually you have the compartment syndrome, you know, for the listeners, that's uh, essentially you have so much swelling in a muscle compartment Mm -hmm. that it cuts off blood supply to the the peripheral or the distal part of the arm. Uh, You have pressure on the nerve, um, not getting blood flow, tissue hypoxia. The hallmark sign is excruciating pain. So uh, obviously I knew something was wrong. told my mother something was wrong, and I had a good mother and a good surgeon, one of which got me to the hospital, and the other did the surgery. The mother took me to the hospital, of course. Uh, But that was a pretty profound moment in my life, I think, and I had always liked medicine, um, the sciences, um, all that sort of thing. I didn't really love like high-level math particularly, because it wasn't really applicable to everyday life, but science certainly was, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what steered me into nursing specifically, um, because I was in the hospital and had a lot of great nurses. Uh, And initially I may have thought about being like an orthopedic surgeon because it is hyper-rational, because you have a broken bone, line it back up, it heals up nicely, and it just makes a lot of sense. Whereas you get into you know, something like oncology, and a lot of times there are question marks all over the place. Like things yep. don't always make sense. Yep. So I, I definitely skew towards preferring things that are more um, rational, or where there's a lot of robust evidence, uh, or a, a really good understanding of those topics. So how, I think how old were you at the time? Yeah, that's a, a good point. This was going into eighth grade summer, so I would have been uh, probably thirteen or fourteen, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's about the time that I actually pivoted into the public school system, mm-hmm. uh, because growing up, I was a mix of church school and then homeschooled. 
the homeschooling was definitely the more productive portion of my education. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, you know, I had a lot of motivation to like learn the topic, get my schoolwork done, do well on the Iowa basics testing, and I would compress my schoolwork into the early part of the day. Yes. And then I would have my afternoons. We grew up out in the country, so I could go play outside and and do whatever I wanted to after I got my work done. Mm -hmm. So it was a a very powerful, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, a very powerful dopamine booster, having that reward of being able to go play outside and Mm -hmm. do whatever I wanted to after the schoolwork portion was done. We had a very similar homeschooling experience in that. Compress it in the earlier part of the day, get it done early, be productive, and then go outside after. Yeah, I love being outside. I like swimming, you know, being out in nature. We had 10 acres at the time. Half of that was woods. So you just go walk around and look at creek beds and all those things that we do as kids. And this was probably when I was, I don't know, six through 10 or 11, something like that. Mm -hmm. Where'd you grow up? This was Southern Illinois. So at the time, Marion, Illinois, maybe had about 15 or 20,000 for the population of the the city. (laughs) I don't know if you can really call it a city, but uh, that's where I grew up. And then when I went into the public school system, that was in Harrisburg, Illinois, which is now about 10,000 people, I believe. So a little bit smaller. Um, Graduating class, I believe, was 120 people. People might be able to understand that a little bit better than the total population of an area. Um, But a very small, very rural um, community and um, not a whole lot of things to do aside from things in nature and kind of looking mm-hmm. back. So how'd you go from, uh, you know, a high schooler in rural Illinois and uh, knowing that you wanted to go into the sciences to having a health optimization clinic and podcast? Yeah, it's quite a journey. Uh, nursing school was the first part of that. Um, actually, while I was in high school, um, I give a lot of credit to my mom having the foresight to kind of guide me and help me coordinate some like dual credit classes and um, some of the prerequisites that I would need to get into nursing school. So because I did that, I didn't have like a senior trip or senior vacation because my summer was summer courses because I wanted to get into nursing school the fall after I got out of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I successfully did so um, past the, I think, T's test it was called, something of that nature, which was mm-hmm. very similar to the ACT that I had taken just prior. Yep. So it makes sense to do it as soon as possible before those things start to fade away. Yep. So it was a, a pretty good community college. Uh, I think it was or still is number one in the state of Illinois as far as board pass rates and when they get audits done and, and things of that nature. So, so so your parents probably paid for this college, right? <laughs> no, no, my parents did not pay for this college. Um, I did have the good fortune of having my mother as an employee at the college. So uh, I did have tuition or a portion of tuition paid for. Um, I did get a health and life sciences scholarship, uh, which is not a substantial amount of money. I think it was four or $5,000. And I had to also uh, do a lot of volunteer hours that were tied to that money. So mm-hmm. when I calculated it out, I'm like, well, this is substantially more than I'm making per hour right now at my yes. job. So I'm like, that's a great deal, and I'm going to do that. So speaking of your job, we're both notoriously frugal with things that we can be. And uh, another thing that we kind of have in common is uh, that we both have had a lot of jobs from a very early age. 
Um, so, and we'll do more on our similarities and maybe differences as well, but there's certainly a lot of similarities. Um, how do you think um, like that, uh, I guess, work experience translates into the work experience here clinically? Yeah, so looking at my job history, my first job was actually McDonald's. Um, that's where I was at when I was 16. Uh, and then I you know, made friends there and people that formerly worked there with me actually um, helped me to get a better job working as a mm -hmm. server. So I, I think it goes back to networking and making connections. That's pretty um, consistent with things that we do now with, you know, we love networking and meeting with new people and collaborating mm -hmm. because everyone out there is going to know something that you don't. Yes. Um, and those people, you know, if you are just generally a good person and kind and fun to be around, then that's going to come back around. It's going to be a positive thing for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I went from you know working in McDonald's to working as a server. Uh, at one point, I did have three jobs while I was in college. I worked at McDonald's from 4 to 7 a.m., went to school, worked in the bookstore, waited tables on the weekends. Um, didn't do that for very long. I, I backed off to eventually what was the highest um, output for unit input of my time, which mm -hmm. was waiting tables. Um, so when I was in school, I had this sort of break from school on the weekends because I would work like a double shift on Saturday, double shift on Sunday, and also working Friday night. So I was like, oh, I don't have to listen to a lecture or look at a textbook a whole lot this weekend. And then by the time the weekend was over, I was kind of burned out on working. So it's like, oh, what a, what a relief this mm -hmm. is. I get to bury myself in a textbook and listen to lectures and all these sorts of things. So that balance worked for me. If some people are listening and they may think, gosh, that sounds terrible. Uh, but I think it worked. And I think it gave me a lot of good work ethic. I, I've always liked working hard because I see the, you know, the upside at the end of the day or several years out. Just like when I was, you know, let's say eight years old, doing my homework at home, homeschool, and then knowing that I had this free time that was on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. I think that the concept of input and then putting off the pleasure uh, is definitely good for uh, dopaminergic sensitivity, which is certainly useful in medicine as well. That way you don't, uh, it helps with focus and helps with retention as well. Um, by the way, given your work history, if someone in the audience would make a meme uh, of James O'Hara working at McDonald's, that would be great. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe, they, maybe there's a picture out there. We don't know. Yeah, I would love to see that. I, I think there are pictures out there of me working at McDonald's. Um, and if someone makes a meme, even better. I love yeah. memes. So how did you know to go from this into nurse practitioner school? Um, again, I assume that your parents probably paid for a nurse practitioner education or that you just kind of like partied the weekends away all the way through school? Yeah. So going from nurse to nurse practitioner wasn't like the, it wasn't necessarily the goal that I had in mind. I knew it was a thing. Um, and then in my, you know, lectures, just like has been talked about for decades at this point, the instructors were saying, you know, Hey, you know, if you get into a program now, then you know, they're not, you're not going to have to get a doctorate degree to be a nurse practitioner. Otherwise, they're going to kind of move the, the goalposts on that. And I don't know if that will ever happen. It hasn't happened yet. And that was many, many years ago when they were talking about those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't have that in mind. I was like, no, I, I don't necessarily love the idea of having another, you know, four years of school right after this mm -hmm. um, when I can go out and 
actually start working, get good at what I'm doing as an RN. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I did. I didn't do anything um, immediately after to pursue a, a nurse practitioner degree. Uh, the wife and I, uh, I guess that's a pretty big life event we should discuss yeah. too. Are you married? Did you get eloped? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did you know? Uh, I met my wife in nursing school. Um, so she is an RN as well. And we, after nursing school graduation, decided to move to a, a larger area to work at larger hospitals. Um, the rural facilities are usually critical access facilities is what people might know them as. Usually like a five bed ER, very small and um, they're, they're referred to as band-aid stations. So any kind of serious pathology, um, using a lot of the skills and education that you just got, would start to, you would lose those skills. You wouldn't mm -hmm. be using them in everyday practice because anything serious is going to get shipped off to a higher level facility. Yeah. So it was a no-brainer for both of us um, and perhaps a bit of a risk, but we did move across to Southern Indiana um, where there's a lot of, well, actually two very large health systems for not necessarily a very large population. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've got a lot of good experience that way. Uh, and we did both go back and you know, do our bachelor's degrees because that's something that the hospitals require now from RNs. Usually they want a hmm. five-year commitment. Like within five years, you have to have your BSN. They're trying to get more people with four-year degrees. Is that really necessary? I don't think so. I don't think they're going to actually fire people if push comes to shove. But it may be used as a bargaining chip against your like, raises, promotions. And they certainly want people in managerial positions to have a BSN. I didn't find a lot of clinical value from it. Um, I remember you know, going through the statistics course. Um, once you have the formulas plugged into the Excel spreadsheet, that was you know, quite easy because yeah. um, it's just you know, inputs and outputs, very rational. Uh, but I do remember you know, creating those sort of graphs and uh, pie charts and bar charts, uh, the metrics that they use to grade the different units on, you know, how well you're doing at something, or mm. usually how poorly the staff is doing at something. So I, I thought that was interesting. I'm like, okay, so that's where these people you know, learn to do this. But it was more so for people that wanted to not improve their clinical skills, nursing skills, taking care of patients on the floor. But in my opinion, for someone who wanted to get into an administrative or a management type of role. Um, that's where I think the sort of like nursing leadership and, and those sorts of curr curriculum courses would have been mm -hmm. beneficial. Um, but for myself at this time, I was just like, well, I'm just going to get it done because I don't want to be scrambling five years from now trying nope. to keep my job because I don't have a BSN degree. Nope. And my theory at the time was, well, you know, I'll never be as young or have as much energy as I do right now. So the best time to get it done is right now. Mm -hmm. Um, as many people know, we love education and credentialing, and we're lifelong learners. And um, if possible, I would we would just continue to uh, educate ourselves, whether or not it came with credential, and we will continue to do that, whether it's formally or informally, probably a combination of both. But um, that's also an interesting, I guess, cor uh, corollary to that is that many countries have less requirements. They have a, like a lower opportunity cost for becoming both a nurse and a doctor. For example, undergraduate degrees are not required in most countries to get to become a medical doctor. So there's, um, and the best of both worlds is probably to have both options because some people do need um, a BSN or some people do need an undergraduate education just for more background or um, even just to mature socially and, and learn other skills as an adult. So there's definitely two sides to that story.
Yeah. And I think everyone has their own, you know, view on that. And you know, education is good for your brain as well. We know that people that go on and attain higher degrees, uh, whether that correlates directly with intelligence or because they've you know, built up a cognitive reserve, it's going to be good for your brain in the mm -hmm. long term. So um, as far as getting to you know, becoming a nurse practitioner, um, when I was working in the hospital, I started off you know, naturally in orthopedics, given my extensive orthopedic background. Yep. So I broke a lot of bones. I'm like, hey, this makes sense. You know, I'm a shoe in for this position. Uh, and they were doing a lot of joint replacements at that time and, and still are, which I think can be great surgeries for people. Um, I, I'd like to see the sense of hope that patients had when they came in because they come in and they have this really debilitative, debilitated joint. And they're having worse and worse pain year after year. And they wake up with pain from surgery. I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's yep. not a pleasant experience. But um, it's not that the pain is different, but the mindset is different. So they know mm -hmm. each day, each week, things are going to get a little bit better. They're doing their physical therapy. Um, they're really empowered. So I've tried to carry that with me um, even now into my practice and mm -hmm. you know, empower patients to kind of take charge of their health and, and really inspire that hope when I have conversations whether it's just about being preventative or whether there's actually a disease state or pathology that we're trying to treat. Yeah, definitely podcast incoming on orthopedics. For example, joint replacements, we could talk about resurfacing. We could talk about 3D printed joints like conformis. We could talk about regenerative therapies. We can talk about stem cells. People love stem cell in the, in the caption. It's very popular. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. But um, how did that transition into uh, seeing people more holistically? Yeah, another fun one would be the um, arthroscopic knee surgeries versus sham control. We like that study. So, yeah, we'll definitely discuss that. But yeah, seeing people holistically, and I think this is part of what people tend to tether to nursing. And not every nurse is like this. Certainly there are nurses that get themselves into the news for doing not great things. Um, but nurses are perceived as caring and they are you know, the most, one of the most trusted professions, doctors and nurses, yep. especially family doctors are right up there. Family doctors from Kansas might be okay. Nurses <laughs> more so than doctors. Yep. So in the, you know, what is it, U.S. World News and Report Rankings or something yep. like that. Um, but there was a big in, uh, in, like emphasis on caring and like talking, you know, touch you know, when you're mm -hmm. caring for a patient in the hospital because... It's a total loss of control for them. Yep. And you have a lot of power and responsibility when you're in that situation, taking care of somebody in their vulnerable state. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with a physician or a nurse practitioner. Um, you know, sometimes we have people coming to us because they're well and they want to stay well. But in general, in medicine, people are in a position where they 
uh, are not doing well and that they need help. Uh, they've kind of exhausted their first line of resources and they need to seek expert, uh, expert counsel. Mm. So I remember a quote that one of my instructors used uh, was, you know, patients don't care what you know, uh, but they do want to know that you care. And I thought, oh, that's pretty profound. Um, it's probably good to know some things also. Yeah. Um, but the take home of that is you definitely want to you know, have the patient know that you care about them. Um, and I saw you know, Twitter the other day that this was a lecture that I think lots of healthcare professionals are going to. And they're like, you know, what is the best way to you know, not get sued? Because this, you know, this whole landscape of everybody sues everybody now is really taking an interesting turn. And yeah. the answer was just be nice. Like if somebody is very abrasive or hateful, like that person, you, the patients are going to remember that or someone in public that you run into with your car is going to remember that and yeah. you're going to be more likely to get sued. So you, know, you should be nice anyway, um, but for people that need an additional lever to push them in that direction, yes, that may be motivating for some people. So I think being kind, taking into account people's you know, mindset, um, the fact that you know, physical touch and reassurance are all very important things. And there's more to it than just um, broken bone, surgery, discharge from hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of being nice, uh, I think that's a good tie-in with provider burnout. Right? You're pretty young. I don't know if you've told people how young you are yet, but um, how would you assess um, how to avoid provider burnout? I feel like we have very low provider burnout at Gillette Health, but maybe it just hasn't been around for long enough. But there's certainly some things that can help and some things that can hinder um, this, like, I guess, ability to be nice. If you look at a chart, this is probably true for nursing school as well. But during medical school, you have very high levels of empathy. There's a scale that you can measure it. And then as you go through medical school and residency, it, it plummets precipitously. Yeah. And you see the effects of this. It's not just your quality of life, but the quality of care that's being provided to patients. Uh, I saw an article, and this has probably been a couple of years ago, that caught my attention where, you know, you had this you know, individual who was seeking care in an emergency department and the uh, inner city somewhere, the nurses or whoever's doing triage just assumed that they were intoxicated, you know, whatever it may be, they need to sleep it off. And they were actually in diabetic ketoacidosis. So you never want to kind of frame a person in your mind mm -hmm. based on your past experiences because... Yeah. Everyone is a unique individual, and that's why we're such big proponents of individualized medicine. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a big part of it. And, and burnout, you know, the electronic health record systems, um, it's not all that it was cracked up to be initially. I think it is better than the paper charting in terms of having things you know, being organized, being able to find files, you know, fax reports, things like that. There is a lot of good about it. Um, but there is a correlation with the like, alert burden and reminders and the number of tasks that um, providers and nurses have to do in those systems uh, that directly correlates with the burnout. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of stuffing more um, productivity is what they would call it, the hospital mm -hmm. system, which in truth it is because people are being more productive, but you're pushing that into a smaller time window and um, that does stress people out. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of like the uh, phenomena of alarm fatigue. You have you know, these bed alarms or cardiac alarms, all these yep. things going off in the hospital. It's like 90 to 95% of the time, because they've done these studies, those are false alarms. So after a while, if somebody is becoming you know, jaded or burnt out, they're not going to respond as quickly to those alarms, even though there's that potential 
for every single one of those to be a life-threatening situation. Mm -hmm. That people kind of become desensitized to it. And you see the same thing in the electronic health records. So you get yeah. these alerts that pop up and they're trying to improve you know, quality of care, reporting metrics, or um, remind you of things that you need to do. Uh, and I'm sure our colleague Taylor has a lot of input yeah. on which one of these are, are beneficial and which are not so much. Mm -hmm. um, but they're trying to do a good thing and, and people just kind of become desensitized to it. So I, I think that's a factor of burnout. Um, and then another thing is, you know, we could talk about the corporate takeover of some of these health systems, um, physicians, providers that were in these private practices that then are trying to have productivity improved and you're pushing you know, more patients into a uh, smaller amount of time. Mm -hmm. So productivity does go up. Yeah. These providers are seeing more patients after a corporate takeover versus when they're in private practice. But a lot of times for patients, that means less time with the provider that they want to talk to about their health. Uh, because you probably know this from being in the hospital and working in traditional medicine and, and as opposed to now, there are patients that you know, they won't tell the whole story to the medical assistant or the RN in the hospital. Uh, they want to wait for you know, the doctor or the nurse practitioner or whoever they want to see to give away some of the details of their case. Like they may come out of left field with some details. It's like, well, you know, that would have been important to know whenever they got admitted. But for whatever reason, uh, they have a level of comfort with a certain provider and not another. Uh, it's kind of radical to think about when you have a, a total stranger that comes into the clinic and you just expect them to reveal their um, you know, sort of health concerns, things that are very anxiety provoking. And it's, it's very unnatural. Yeah. Um, especially, I, I think I saw this a lot in the more rural environment. You know, these, these patients would kind of be in denial that you know, anything was wrong with them. They'd be like, yeah, you know, my, my wife made me come here. I don't know why I'm here. I'm fine. This and that. And for this CR podcast, the number one thing harming men's health. Yeah. And, and we can throw men under the bus here a little bit because it, they do tend to keep everything inside and you know, they're not actively seeking health care uh, in a way that would benefit them long term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And part of the answer to that would be men's uh, passive self-harm is not seeking health care. So that kind of that state of denial. Yeah, I think that's uh, a great summary of a lot of the issues regarding burnout. I do find it interesting how um, sometimes you make the analogy of like a, an ape swinging from tree to tree. And before you get all, like let go of one branch, you want to grab the next branch. So uh, huge corporate systems obviously are evil. Um, most of the time they buy a system, they're buying out a failing system or a system that is losing money. And if that system had gone under, then that community would lose that healthcare and become more of a healthcare desert or become underserved. Hopefully Gillette Health can kind of uh, address that. A lot of healthcare businesses do go out of business due to monetary reasons. So one of the ways I look at it is, and uh, just like you, I did a lot of volunteering as well. And they have FQHCs and it's great to volunteer at H FQHCs and safety net clinics. But just like the, um, I guess delving into spirituality a bit, just like uh, mission trips for some people can be like a, a precipice of the like spiritual well-being or self-actualization. You can have those same experiences right there with your patients that you're seeing in your city. So just like a lot of Christians see their city or their church as their mission field, they don't have to go to um, a different country to do it. I think one way to improve burnout is to see the patient population that is right here in front of us, which we're very thankful that they support our small family owned business 
to support um, those patients and see them as part of that self-actualization. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think there's actually you know, good data to this, not even looking at the, you know, like the spirituality or just being altruistic, but like people literally tend to feel better and have a sense of meaning when they are doing any kind of, you know, charity work. And you don't have to be a medical professional to do that. You can go mm-hmm. to, you know, a local food bank and you will see people that are like the most thankful that you've ever seen in your life. Cause that's part mm-hmm. of what I did in my volunteering because I didn't have medical credentials at the time, but mm-hmm. I found ways to volunteer uh, and be involved and benefit the community. Yeah. Um, and public health in general, I, and again, to go back to our colleague Taylor, um, he harps on this, uh, public health is kind of one of his things. Um, starting from that and addressing the social determinants of health, which is, uh, for example, your situation as you grew up in Southern Illinois, or even uh, my situation, there's always social determinants of public health um, that can benefit or not benefit a community. Another example of that is the high incidence of things like PCOS or um, you know, infer- subfertility that go undiagnosed and uncared for and uncovered for, that'd be underinsured, not necessarily uninsured, but underinsured, but also things like performance enhancing substance use in extreme athletes or uh, veterans come back from coming back from overseas those are very underserved groups, which might not qualify on like a sliding fee scale for um, an FQHC or a safety net clinic. And um, it is very rewarding to help take care of those communities. Yeah, because yeah, somebody is picking, you know, which groups get the you know allocated funds or allocated resources. And, mm-hmm. you know, whenever you have it, there's just no way to do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. You're going to have groups you know, like you mentioned that are still underserved due to you know a lack of resources being provided to them or a lack of education on the people caring for them yep. so seeing a you know a niche there and an opportunity uh, putting out free information that people can apply for their health uh, something that we do something a lot of people are doing now so i think that's a very positive um you know effort towards like educating the public because i feel like you know we looked at this with smoking in the past and public health Right. It took a lot of education over a long period of yes. time before you started to see um, the tide change there. And now very few people are actually smoking. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've got the whole new second generation of inhaled nicotine <laughs> products. But that's another discussion. Yes, definitely another discussion. I think that is a good segue into uh, the future, the future of our plans or your plans. Um, where do you see um, like, you know, us in 10 years, 30 years, 40 years? Uh, what other, uh, I guess, plans do you see yourself going forward with in the future? Yeah, I think that Gillette Health as a company will continue to grow and attract and recruit high quality providers um, like myself, yourself, and our colleagues that we have recruited so far that can really take this individualized approach to health. Um, and I don't think that there's necessarily a cap on how many people we may have in 10 years. Mm-hmm. It may be you know, 50, it may be in the hundreds. It's kind of hard to say, um, but I'm very optimistic either way. I don't think those numbers are gonna be going down um, because in public health, I think people are now, for better or for worse, over the past three years, the silver lining is that people are taking a, an interest in their health, whether that's with you know, biohacking or whether that's people just wanting to you know, not be susceptible to any kind of respiratory viruses that we might not mention by name. Yes. Um, But people are taking an interest. And I think that's a a wonderful thing for myself. 
uh, I plan to continue to be you know, a lifelong learner. And you know, I feel like every year in my life, um, or maybe different life periods, I've looked back and thought, like, wow, I really didn't know much back then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, turn 18, I'm an adult, right? <laughs> I know so much. Um, you know, turn 21 and you get the, the horizontal you know, driver's license card. So it's like, okay, now I'm really an adult because I have these additional rights now. Um, and then, you know, I actually, I had my RN degree before I turned 21. So I could, you know, give a lot to grandma in the hospital, but not responsible enough to handle an alcoholic beverage. Of course. So yeah, probably good for my brain, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's diff- these different milestones. So I think, oh, when I'm an RN, you know, I had a lot of knowledge. I really knew a lot about medicine. Uh, and you don't know what you don't know. Same thing mm-hmm. with, you know, when I passed boards after nurse practitioner school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was a really, a, a pretty good curriculum because I put a lot into it, uh, got a lot out of it, and passed boards relatively easily. Um, and I thought, wow, I really know a lot now. And then after being in practice for a year, after being in practice for two years, every year I look back and I think, wow, I feel like I knew exponentially less than I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly see that trend continuing because I've, I've got my, you've seen my Google sheet with all of my different citations and we have these things in all these different places that we're always reading about, chatting about, telling people about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that will only continue, especially as we collaborate with more and more high-level individuals, because you know, like I said earlier, you know, everyone's going to know something that you don't. So, I, I mean, I'm not the person to you know, manage somebody's oncology. You know, that's why we have these different specialties. Um, and you know, that's, that's an interesting topic. I've you know, made the analogy before you know, going off on a rabbit trail here, but the analogy of, you know, the blind man and the elephant, and they're yeah. each touching a different part. Uh, and that's what you see sometimes when there's not great continuity of care. Yeah. You have a bunch of fragmented care between specialists. So mm-hmm. you know, you've got just, you know, say the cardiologist is just looking at the heart or the nephrologist is just looking at the kidneys. Um, and in reality, nephrologists are kind of a doctor's doctor, in my opinion, mm-hmm. really know their physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to give a bit of an analogy there. So I, I hope to continue learning, continue to grow Gillette Health, continue to put out good health care content, good uh, public education, mm-hmm. tell some fun, some funny stories, yep. um, and then continue to learn and collaborate with really intelligent individuals that add a lot of value. I think that's a great way to kind of parse out the the nuance of what we're trying to do. Another saying that we both like is you don't know what you don't know. So being okay, be okay seeking out and asking other people what that might be. So that's kind of the strength of the interdisciplinary team. And maybe that's a good way to sum up this part of the podcast. Yeah. I, I don't know if we covered everything uh, longitudinally as much as people would like. So I guess we could do a, you know an AMA at some point and then choose to answer some questions, choose to not answer some questions like any other childhood trauma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we get all kinds of interesting questions and you know they're all great. Um, we like to read through those things. But yeah, I think this was a great first intro podcast and Uh, look forward to interviewing you as well. Sounds good. As always, we thank you for your time and uh, may God bless you and give you health and happiness.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.